Why don't we open in prayer, and then we will we'll get into our text this morning. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful for the opportunities we have every week to come and to sit under the, your teaching, Lord, the work that Pastor Steve does and uh, all of uh, our pastors and, uh, and elders, Lord, uh, to, to communicate the truths of Scripture to us, Lord. We are just so thankful that we have the freedom to be able to do so, as well as the opportunity. I pray that uh, as we look into your word this morning, that you would uh, just pierce our hearts, Lord, that you would uh, help us to take in the lessons you would like us to learn, and that we would apply it to you, our lives. Uh, let us not, Lord, just be mere hearers of your word, but doers as well. I pray for all of the different requests and praises that were mentioned in the prayer uh, section, that you would work in those situations, Lord, uh, for your glory and our good. Lord, I pray that after the service that was, we are dismissed, that we would go and uh, just reflect on the truths we've learned this throughout the week, Lord, uh, and just, again, look to you with love and, and a desire to serve. In your son's name I pray. Amen. On an old English countryside, there sits a church cemetery. Inside this cemetery, a tombstone can be found which reads, Beneath this stone, a lump of clay, lies Arabella Young who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. This is an amusing little uh, ditty here, but it highlights an important uh, problem that we have as people, as fallen people. Okay, that being an inability to control our tongue. Now the tongue is a unique part of the human body. It is responsible for our entire sense of taste. Those of you who had the privilege of getting COVID know that was one of the most disappointing symptoms of COVID, was your, your loss of taste and being able to enjoy food. I actually remember when my wife got her sense of taste back, it was a loud uh, shout from the kitchen, I can taste again! The tongue is responsible for our entire sense of taste. Without it, we would not be able to taste any food. It is the only muscle in our body that is not supported by our skeletal structure in that it is uh, tied to a specific bone. It is the most flexible muscle in our body, as it needs to be in order for, to move the food around as we chew, uh, in order to form phonetic letters. It actually can denote our health. When you are sick, Okay? The next time you're sick, go into the bathroom and look in the mirror, stick your tongue out, and you'll notice your tongue. It's a different color. It's really weird. Only about two-thirds of our tongue are visible. The other third of it is actually down in our throat. It helps us swallow. Every person has a completely unique tongue print. You unlock your phones with your fingerprints and your face. Imagine having to unlock stuff with your tongue. It's completely secure, but would be completely responsible for the next year's pandemic. As important as all of the tasks the tongue performs, there is no more one that is important 
than its use in our communicating. The tongue is so tied to our ability to communicate that it is used metaphorically to refer to our speech. This is because without the tongue it is impossible to speak. It is used to form phonetic letters from the air that we push over our vocal cords. But communicating and communication with the tongue go far beyond the mere transfer of information. You see, communicating, speaking, using our tongues denotes who we really are. One commentator noted that the tongue is you. It is the tattletale that tells on the heart and discloses the real person. And not just that, misuse of the tongue is the easiest sin. There are sins that it would not be possible to commit simply because we don't have the opportunity. Unless something huge happens, I will never have the opportunity to embezzle from a Fortune 500 company. They're just not going to let me inside. But we all have a tongue. We all have a way to communicate. Deceit, flattery, cursings, perversities, boasting, complaining, sensual speech are all available to every person at all times. One commentator stating, it is no wonder God put the tongue behind a cage of teeth. To the Apostle James, the tongue is very important. We can see this because he mentions it in every chapter of his little epistle. He uses it as one of the true tests of true, genuine faith. And this is what we want to take a look at this morning. You have your Bibles, make your way to James chapter 3. James chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses. James writes, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at a ship's also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set amongst our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and have been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes both blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not be this way. Does a fountain send from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Before we dig into the text, a little bit of background on our passage this morning. We see it is found in the book of James, which is written by the James, the half-brother of Jesus. We know this because of certainly a number of factors, but linguistics, study of the linguistics about how James, the half-brother of Jesus, spoke in the book of Acts and how he writes here, the time frame on when we believe the book was written. 
It's written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, and he writes to, we see, Jewish believers. We know this because in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, James, the bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes. This denotes the ethnicity of the audience that he is writing to, the twelve tribes being the twelve tribes of Israel, but obviously the context of his message is for believers. And he says to these Jewish believers who are dispersed abroad, James is writing his epistle to disperse Jewish believers who have been dispersed because persecution is beginning to ramp up in the Roman Empire. Real persecution hasn't started. It's coming. Terrible, terrible things are coming for the church. And it has only just begun. And James wants to get in front of this and... James wants to get in front of this and addresses this letter to these Jewish believers to help encourage them to stay firm in their faith. He does this by writing his epistle to them, which is filled with different tests that a person can run in their life to see if their faith is genuine or imagined. We see, for example, in James chapter 1, Beginning in verse 2, we see the test of perseverance in the midst of trials. We see in the latter part of chapter 1 the test of blame, of temptation, in response to the Word. Chapter 2 deals with a test of impartiality and test of righteous works. Then we find our section this morning, chapter 3, the test of the tongue. All of these things are meant to highlight to the believer, how genuine faith responds to these different circumstances. And the reader is to look at it and go, do I respond like this? If not, I need to examine to see if I am truly a believer. We find ourselves this morning, like I said, again, examining the test of the tongue. How do genuine believers speak? This is very important because it's not just a matter of how we speak. You see, the tongue is nothing more, though, than the exhaust vent for the heart. It denotes who we really are inside. We see this in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, Jesus explaining to his disciples that it is not what you put into your body that defiles you, but what is already there inside your heart. Matthew 15, 18 says, But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witnesses, slanders. Jesus spells this out explicitly. It's not about what you eat that makes you unclean. It's about your unclean heart, and that is made evident by what you are saying this is James' test. If you want to know if you are truly a child of God, look at the things that you are saying because a repentant heart is going to produce repentant speech and an unrepentant heart will produce unrepentant speech. Well, that being said, we're going to be, see this morning four reasons why we should tame our tongues. Four reasons to tame our tongue. The first is found in chapter 3, verses 1, and the first part of verse 2, is that we will be held accountable for what we say. 
James writes, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. James begins this section by addressing his comments to those in the church who were desiring to teach inside of the church. From what it appears, from the way James phrases this, is that it was a popular thing. There were a lot of men who wanted to teach inside of the church. And this would not have been abnormal in James' day. You see, the role of rabbi or teacher in Jewish circles was greatly honored. Rabbis were considered to be the master teachers of the Jewish faith, and that title carried a certain prestige. Oftentimes, rabbis were given certain privileges normal members of Jewish society were not given. In Jewish society, there was almost a cult-like devotion to the rabbi, such that a person's duty to their rabbi superseded their duty to even their own parents. Since it was seen that their parents merely brought them into this world, but the rabbi could bring you into the next. This concept was so prevalent that if a man's parents and rabbi were taken captive by some kind of enemy band, the rabbi was to be ransomed first. People would actually bring rabbis into their homes and support them financially with different goods and foods and clothing and all of these things, which was not what a rabbi was supposed to do. A rabbi was supposed to support themselves with a trade. With all of the respect given by their Jewish countrymen, a lot of rabbis allowed themselves to become arrogant and puffed up. We see, for example, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus addressing a crowd in response to the rabbis. He says in Matthew 23, verses 1 through 7, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. They broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by men. Rabbis of Jesus' age were not concerned with the things of God. They were concerned solely with societal position. But aside from that, aside from that reason being why men would want to teach in the church, it was actually normal in Jewish society for any man in good standing with the temple to stand up and teach during a synagogue service. Jesus spoke at his hometown synagogue Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journeys would go from town to town speaking first in the synagogues and then taking the gospel to the masses. James says, let not many of you become teachers. This is not James discouraging people from seeking to teach the scriptures. Nor is he discouraging men from communicating spiritual matters to one another. He is instead communicating that if someone wants to be an official teacher of the Word of God, they must run the test of the tongue in their life. James tells us in chapter 1, verse 26, 
that if anyone thinks that they are religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart and that man's religion is worthless. A broadening that to all of us. If we say that we are follower of Christ and yet we speak like the most wicked unbeliever, that is worthless. That is meaningless. It shows that our heart is not where it should be. This principle, James, applies to all of those who claim the name of Christ. But a special weight is applied to those who want to be spokesperson for God. We know from Paul that those who serve in the position of teacher is a good thing. He says this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but there is a warning that goes with it. My brother, knowing that such will incur a stricter judgment, James tells us. Why? Why is there a stricter judgment for teachers? Because there is a responsibility that exists in no other office. A person assumes certain things about somebody who teaches. And the teacher has a certain influence over the learners that exists nowhere else. When you go to to a teacher, you are assuming that they know more about a particular subject matter. And you want to know more, so you're going to them to get their extra knowledge. There's a trust that the teacher will not violate his position as teacher to corrupt the pupil or teach incorrectly, which is something that is not happening right now in this world's universities. There is also a responsibility of the teacher to the governing body that oversees them. And in the case of the teacher of the Word of God, that governing body is none other than the Lord Himself. So there is a strict judgment and a responsibility to the teacher. Ezekiel chapter 3 says, Son of man, God speaking to Ezekiel, I have appointed you a watchman over the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you do not warn them or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, and that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet, if you have warned the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered yourself. Principle is, if I tell you to go warn them, I'm sending you as a prophet to go warn the wicked. If you don't do that, I'm going to judge them for their wickedness and they're going to die, but I'm going to hold you responsible as well. I gave you a job. 1 Corinthians 9, 16 Paul writes, but if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast about, for I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Men need to keep their doctrine pure because of their responsibility to God. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that men need to keep their teachings clear of strange doctrine and endless genealogies and myths. 1 Timothy 6.5, Paul says that A man who advocates for a different doctrine than that of Christ knows nothing. Teachers are not to be new converts as well. 
so as not to become arrogant like the rabbis of Jesus' day. Even Paul himself waited three years before beginning his teaching ministry. James, you're trying to communicate the fact that our speech is very important, but for those who would teach that there is stricter judgment. Well, what is this judgment? Okay, we know that an approved teacher is a humble person who understands their responsibility to God. But what is this judgment James speaks of? Well, James has said in James chapter 119 that we must be slow to speak because a judgment awaits a believer. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 and 37 tell us that every careless word will be judged by God. This is none other than the Bema Seat judgment that all believers will stand before God one day and give an account to every careless word we have spoken. That's a truth that sometimes escapes our mind. That one day we will stand before God and we will have to explain every foolish thing that came out of our mouth and every thought that came into our head. And lest anyone think that it's exempt, any foolish thing we put into a keyboard and post on social media, which I'm not sure, I don't know how many people in this group are very active on social media, but still, it is, it is a plague of society right now as people hide behind the anonymity of a keyboard and say really, really foolish things. But even that, we'll have to give an account to the Lord for. We see this in Romans chapter 14. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now this is different from the great white throne judgment which awaits all unbelievers. Although I'm sure there are plenty of people who consider themselves teachers who will be there as well. The faithful teacher receives the reward in line with the faithfulness to their teaching. We will all stand before the Lord and give an account for our foolish speech. And James is giving an extra warning here for anyone who would be a teacher. And guys, our responsibility to go out and to share the good news, that's included in there too. Remember, the Great Commission isn't just for pastors, and elders, and Bible and Sunday school teachers. It's for all of us. We will have to give an account of ourselves to God for the things that we say. James tells us that we all stumble in many ways. James is expressing the fact that no one is exempt from the danger of sinning with their tongue. It is the duty of the teacher to reign in their tongue. Really, it is the duty of all of us to watch what we say. We all stumble. This is not something any of us are exempt for. There is nobody in this room who can say, yeah, I got my tongue under control. I don't struggle with that. My speech is always seasoned with salt. I got the saltiest speech of anyone. No, we all stumble. We all stumble in many ways and none more easily than in our speech. It's including the speech up here. We can look at someone and say something nice and in the back of our minds going, what an idiot. First reason we tame our tongue is we will give an account to the Lord for the things that we say. 
Number two, because the tongue has great power to control. Verses two through five. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they will obey us, we direct our entire body as well. Look at ships also, though they are so great and driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. James here underscoring, first of all, that he says, if anyone does not stumble at what he says, he is a perfect man. And we've already seen, that's not us. Not even close. The only person who could claim that would be Jesus himself. Hey, that is not us. There are two possible understandings of what he's talking about when he talks about the perfect man here. One is absolute perfection, which he's already told us is not us. The other expresses uh, the idea of a mature believer who may stumble a little bit, but for the most part, because of their active, growing relationship with Jesus, is matured in the way that they speak. And there are good people on both sides of this argument. I believe here he's speaking of the idea of being made mature because he's already told us we all sin. So this, we cannot strive for perfection. It simply won't happen. And to underscore this idea of having control over the tongue in a mature fashion, James uses two illustrations to talk about the tongue's power to control. The first, he speaks of horses. He says, when we put bits into the mouths of horses, we can turn the animal at any desire. Horses are immensely powerful creatures. For thousands of years, they were the main military, like, high-up hardware. They were the main implement of farming and agriculture and travel. They've had huge impacts on society. Even today, you drove here in a car, the power of that car is not measured in people power. And nor is it measured in squirrel or dog power. It is measured in horsepower. The very image of a horse is an image of immense power. However, all of that power can be brought under control by the use of a small piece of metal inside the horse's mouth, such that even a hundred-pound person on the back of a horse can make a horse dance. The disproportionate size of the bit to the horse, showcases just how much impact a little piece of metal can have over this power of the horse. Likewise, James talks about ships. And in the same way that the bit is so small and compared to the horse, the rudder is so small compared to the boat. However, in the hands of a skilled sailor, that rudder can steer a boat hundreds of times its size and weight wherever this, the captain of the boat wants it to go. Likewise, the tongue, being one of the smallest parts of our body, can control where we go. One commentator stating that if the tongue were so well under control that it refused to formulate the words of self-pity, the images of lustfulness, the thoughts of anger and resentment, then these things would be cut down before they had a chance to live. Careless speech can cost us a lot. It can cost us a job, friendships, relationships with family members. 
It can even get us into trouble with the law. I'm sure everyone in this room can think of a moment where the entire course of their life would have taken a different turn if they had used different words in that situation. Our tongue, being so small though, has a disproportionate control over the course of our life. That's why James says the tongue boasts of great things. And also underscoring the sinful inclination to be self-centered. We can use our tongues to, to, to do terrible things. Bringing us to our third point. We need to control our tongue or tame our tongue because we will give an account for what we say because it has immense power to control. Number three, because it is a source of terrible evil. Verses five through eight. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set amongst its members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea have been tamed and have been tamed by the human race, yet no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. James here focusing more on the power of the tongue here uh, in its destructive nature. Because when you think about it, simply possessing the power to control is, is a neutral quality. Okay? it is up to the inclination of the person using it as to whether or not it is a source of good or is a source of evil. And James here is telling us it's a source of evil. Okay? Our speech can be used, for example, like Martin Luther. It is his words on the castle door in Wittenberg that popularized and mainstream the Protestant Reformation. Or on the, you have on the other side, Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5 who uses his words in a really foolish manner in it. It cost them the Babylonian Empire. James here explains that the tongue has immense power to destroy. We are told to behold its mighty destructive nature. And to illustrate this, James uses the illustration of fire. Now, fire is very unique. It possesses the power of self-replication. So long as the fuel source exists and there's oxygen the fire will continue to grow and to replicate itself. A quality that does not exist in Oreos. Every time I eat one of them, another one doesn't appear not next to it. I'm simply short one Oreo. Fire is immensely powerful and destructive. Every year, billions of dollars in damages are caused around the world by fire. James tells us, as destructive as fire is, the tongue is destructive in that same way. It says there is a real danger in using the tongue. He calls it the very world of iniquity. We are told evil, rebellion, lawlessness, every form of sin is found in the tongue. One commentator stating that the tongue is a microcosm for evil amongst its members. It is vile, wretched, and wicked scheme of fleshly humanness. No other bodily part has such far-reaching potential for disaster and destruction as the tongue. There is an old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, 
I'm sure everyone in this room understands that is simply not true. Words can do destruction on a scale that is only matched by fire. Well, how does it do this? How do we misuse the tongue like this? Well, for example, gossip. Gossip is immensely destructive. Gossip, passing incorrect information in order to make people look at another person in a very suspicious manner. And the thing about gossip is it is so insidious that once it's out there, it cannot be brought back in. Even when the rumor is proven to be false, it's too late. There are some who will always believe it, and it will always be out there. The subject of gossip will always have to be defending themselves against it. Gossip can veil itself in conversations like, well, did you know? Or so they tell me. Or perhaps the greatest form of Christianizing sin, only telling you this so that you can be praying. But, did you hear? Gossip is so wicked But it's not alone. There's innuendo. A close cousin of gossip. Gossip is about what is said. Innuendo is about what is not said. The best example of innuendo I ever found was this. A ship's mate, first mate, who after a drunken binge was written up by the captain in the ship's log. First mate drunk today. So in response, the first mate wrote in his log, Captain sober today. What's the implication? Innuendo was all about what is implied. It is a way of cutting down someone without actually having to say something bad. And some people believe this to be a loophole in gossip. But it isn't. It is perhaps even more deceitful than gossip. It is lying by telling the truth. But it's not alone. Flattery. Gossip involves saying something to somebody's back that you would never say to their face. Flattery involves saying something to somebody's face you would never say behind their back. The Bible is filled with warnings about someone who would flatter. Proverbs 29.5, a man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. Proverbs 26.28, the lying tongue hates those it crushes and a flattering mouth works ruin. This person will come with sweet words, but in the end they're only looking to get something from you. Favor, fortune, position. But it's not alone. Criticism is perhaps, if you could name a sinful pastime of the church, criticism is it. Church history is filled with congregation after congregation that is full of criticism. Not ours. Ours is great. Got it. Filled with criticism. And I'm not talking about people who are steadfast and have a line in the sand on their teachers holding to biblical fidelity. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about drums on the stage. I'm talking about the speaker needing to be suit clad. I remember my doctrines professor in college relayed a story to us about how he was chastised 
by a member of his church because his tie was too thin. Rock and roll people wore skinny ties. Well, they wear pajamas too. A non-biblical issues. A specific Bible translation. The use of wireless microphones. Using special music. Too often, we can be hypercritical over non-biblical issues, holding our preference as the gold standard as if we receive some kind of special revelation about ankle-length skirts. Pews over chairs. All of this. Silly. Point out flaws and perceived flaws mostly because of our own need to want to be right. My idea of this is the best. So everyone should have my idea. Completely forsaking what Scripture actually says. And all of this leads to diminishment. This is where criticism leads. James 4.11 Do not speak against one another, brethren. Who, is spe who speaks against his brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. If you are a judge of the law, you are not a doer of it, but a judge of it. Literally, do not speak down to one another. James forbids the running down of other people for any reason, whether the comments are true or not, because if the criticism is genuine, there is a biblical way to handle it that does not involve running the image-bearer of God into the dirt. There's perhaps no greater example of this and we see in Scripture than that of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So Pharisee prayer. Thanks that I'm not this guy. This guy, the tax collector, he's the worst. Thank you that I'm not like him. We see, James tells us that the tongue has at its source of power hell. It is set on fire by hell, he says. It is so synonymous, hell is so synonymous with Satan and his purposes that it is used synonymously. Our speech, our tongue can be implements of Satan to fulfill his purposes. The psalmist speaks in Psalm 55 of a treacherous person as his speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. James tells us in verses 7 and 8 that, that we have tamed all kinds of animals. Birds, lions, horses, hippopotamuses. Anything you can think of. We can do anything with them. We, circuses. Hey, you have people putting their heads in lions' mouths for some reason. But we can do it. We've tamed them to be able to do it. But James tells us no man can tame the tongue. He highlights this. In the Greek, it's actually written emphatically. He uses a case ending which would be translated, no man can tame the tongue. But he actually emphasizes it by using the Greek term for man. No man can tame the tongue. It is only brought into submission by the power of Christ. Salvation is so transformative that what was impossible for us to do before, now, because of our saved state, because of the saving work of Jesus, we can now control our speech because our hearts are different. 
Salvation changes the heart and therefore changes our speech. We tame our tongue because we will be held accountable for it because it is a source of great power, because it is a source of terrible evil. Lastly, because of its inconsistent nature. Verses 9 through 12. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes both blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not be this way. Does a fountain send forth from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. The church has a consistency problem. And James is highlighting it here. He says that one moment we could be praising God, which is the completely right thing to do. He's the only one worthy of praise. But five minutes later, we can walk out of the church, see someone do something we wouldn't do in their car in the parking lot, and they go, what an idiot is it? Look what he's doing. We praise God and then mar His image. How is that consistent? Talk about criticism and diminishment. It's so easy for us. We're going into an election year. Talk about marring the image bearers of God. I'm not talking about not calling sin, sin. And not standing for biblical principles. But how easy is it to look at a person we disagree with politically and turn them into a caricature of foolishness and evil. Even unrepentant sinners are image bearers of God. It is a common grace God has placed in all people. Yet we act so unloving toward people we disagree with. COVID showed that. Fights among people, vaccinated, unvaccinated, masks, no masks. And each group vilified each other. Completely, completely unbiblical. We can disagree, but we do it in love. We do it without running down the image of God. James shows this behavior is inconsistent with the rest of nature. It's completely inconsistent. Figs, trees, do not produce olives. I have a fig tree in my backyard. I looked this morning, looked out the window. There were no olives on it. Only figs. He asked, can this happen? Can salt water produce fresh water? The answer is no. Jesus made a similar point in Matthew chapter 12. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Proverbs chapter 4.23 teaches us to watch over our heart with all diligence for from it flows the spring of life. What's in our heart will always be will always be evident in what we say in the same way that an olive tree will not produce figs. In the same way that fresh water cannot produce salt water. The moment you introduce salt water to fresh water, it's not fresh water anymore. It's brackish. 
if you're a fan of science. So you cannot praise the Lord and then diminish His image. It's inconsistent with creation. When commentators saying a hateful heart cannot produce loving words or works, an unrighteous heart cannot produce righteous words or works. Jesus said a good tree cannot produce bad fruit and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. We are reminded in James chapter 2 to speak and to act as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Our speech will dictate a lot of things for us. For the believer, ministry, ministry opportunities, witnessing opportunities can all be affected by our speech. Close with this. In addition to the work here I do for the school and the church, I have been employed by Publix for 19 years. Very shortly after my conversion, I was working one night, uh, very short, a couple of years, I was working one night with a check encoder. I was having a hard time with it. It was a finicky machine and I was so happy when we got rid of them. But after 15 minutes, the machine jamming on me, I was so frustrated. In the solitude of the cash office, I let out a stream of obscenities at this machine. And right when my rant was finished, there was a knock on the cash room door. I opened the door and found one of my supervisors there, and he said, Mike, everything okay back here? I said, because it sounds like I was back there, not you. And I realized at that moment I destroyed my testimony in front of this man. A man who, just a few weeks earlier, was asking me about what I believed. And it crushed me. And the door to witness this individual didn't open again. He saw my speech as no different from his and therefore there was no difference between us. interesting to note here, James does not give us any instruction. There are no tips on taming the tongue. He doesn't say, do this and you're good. I think that's because the first thing he needs us to understand is that we have a problem. We have a problem even if we don't want to recognize it. There are so many times people will say, well, my speech isn't that bad. Look at this guy. That's the defense of an alcoholic. We need to first recognize that we have a problem, a real problem, a sin problem, a problem that we cannot fix on our own. James is very clear, there is no fixing this in our own power. Only the saving power of Jesus Christ can change the source of our problem, and that is our heart. We need to look to Him as the power that we need to tame the tongue. We have a responsibility to go out and to tell the good news. Do so with seasoned speech 
controlled speech. Speech that shows there is a difference between us and others. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray for myself and for everyone in this room that we would seek to control our speech, that we would submit it to you, that it would not be an idol in our life, freedom to think and say what we want, Lord, but we would instead bring it by your power into into subjection to you, Lord. I pray for the effective witness of everyone in this room, that our speech would be evidence of your love, that people would hear us, see us, and see the difference in us. I pray that you would use us as implements to speak the good news into unbelievers, Lord. Let us be consistent with your creation to praise you, to hold your image in high esteem, to not run others down, but instead use it as opportunities to turn people to you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.